Welcome everybody to another episode of the Lewis and Lucas podcast. I am half of the podcast, Lucas. With me as always is Lewis. How are you doing today, sir? Doing well. How Good. are you doing? Oh, great. I'm excited because today we're going to talk about something that I guess is a maybe a pain point of mine. I when I describe my politics to somebody, I tell them I'm a recovering libertarian. I was very much on the member the Ron Paul train. Yeah. His presidential campaign in 2012 was very influential on me looking at libertarian ideas. So we're going to talk about what it is and also why I think libertarianism sucks. <laughs> um, I don't, are you, are you, a or have you ever identified as libertarian? I have definitely identified as libertarian in the past. Um, I am generally in agreement with you that I'm not a libertarian anymore. And I think there's some pretty profound problems with the libertarian, um, libertarian without any kind of checks. Um, on the other hand, like, I think there's some true things about libertarianism. I actually love Ron Paul. Like I, I, I really yep. love that guy to this day, but, um, there's definitely some problems with the, the libertarian system as a whole. So, yeah. And, and, and we'll, we'll flesh this out more, but I'm going to argue that one of the reasons why our society is where it is. It, and I mean, the ch drag shows for children, the public schools, sexualizing children today, I would argue that that's happened and it happens so fast in large part because of a libertarian laissez-faire attitude about what other people should do and what I should do are two different things. Yeah. Uh, that attitude has allowed our society to devolve to where it is now. Um, so anyway, so what is libertarianism? I would define, and, and this is what's so frustrating with libertarianism is because it's so hard to define. I would define it as the government should be limited. It should not be doing X, Y, and Z. Now, what does that mean in, in practice? Libertarians are going to disagree about how involved we should be in foreign affairs, if we should be involved at all. If should there be social services, should be, there be national parks? Um, what and they have a lot of anarchists identify as libertarians, like people who believe that governments are evil. The anarcho capitalists, like Murray Rothbard, uh, who argue that governments in any form are evil because, by their very nature, because they grant a monopoly of force to a select few very very interesting stuff philosophically but yeah in practice it's just such a huge huge mess i don't know what what's sort of your take on on libertarianism lucas or lewis yeah i think yeah, you can call me lucas if you want <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute i'm lucas what's going on here i'm doing the whole podcast now <laughs> um no i i i agree with a lot of your statement i mean like i i think Libertarianism, the, the idea behind it, and just to make the case for libertarianism, because I'm sure we have libertarian listeners. Um, but the case for libertarianism is this is like, hey, you don't want me involved in in your business. I don't want you involved in my business. We're both adults. As long as I'm not infringing on your freedom, you don't infringe on my freedom, we're good, right? Like, so that's what ultimately libertarians should be. 
and like everyone just leave everybody else alone you do your own thing and all is good and there's a certain sense to that right there's a certain element i think there's a reason why that's popular is that it, it sort of makes sense you leave me alone i'll leave you alone we're all good it that overly simplistic model though has flaws as i think as we'll learn but so the let's let's talk i think briefly about the modern iteration of libertarianism and why it's become so popular so ron paul had he was a representative from texas very very he's always been a big part of the conversation on the republican side but i think more really came to prominence during obama's presidency so when obama became president he ran on obamacare and when he came into office he started implementing obamacare there was a lot of fear about we're creating this giant social network that's going to, we don't we're not gonna be able to pay for it and if you remember that the tea party movement that started 2009 2010 was protesting about obamacare and really government expenditures in general so there was a, that tea party a lot of libertarians and people who maybe didn't realize that it was libertarians that were running these things but concert fiscal conservatives found themselves in this tea party movement during obama's presidency which is is funny so then the the, the financial crisis of 2008 and then in 2010 they started the bailing out all these com all these big companies that helped blow up the financial ecosystem we were bailing them out and then we had this um zakati park in new york right the big anti-bailout from the left there was this giant push against the federal government doing all these things and it's it's funny to me how you had at the, at the almost exact same time, you had uber conservatives and uber liberals railing against big government, and they still couldn't coalesce and, and find common ground. Yeah. Did, you know, have you heard the conspiracy theory that I think has a lot of truth to it is that the whole um, critical race theory um, woke movement was birthed on purpose to separate those two sides that, i have uh, heard that. that kind of racial harmony had been growing and growing and growing and and you know in the 1980s it was like oh we're finally behind we got racism behind us and then with the occupy wall street movement there was like oh my goodness the left and the right are joining together to destroy our corporate structure and then all of a sudden it's like, you guys can't be together because they're fascists and they hate black people. And it's like, just a, a yep. and, and, and to the conservatives, forward, here's, here's this cultural dividing line that yeah. you, you can't be a part of. Yeah. They, I think it's, it's very like, and maybe some of our younger listeners might find it, you know, that corporations have always been pro LGBT, whatever. No, it's, that's a pretty modern phenomenon. And it, it coincidentally enough, happened very quickly after Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street. Yep, yep. So enter Ron Paul. Now, he's, libertarians have known Ron Paul for a long time, but it really became part of the modern consciousness, took a lot of the talking points from 
the Tea Party from Occupy Wall Street into his presidential campaign when he was running to become the Republican nominee for 2012. He lost to Mitt Romney, but he a lot of the stuff that Republicans talk about now, the we need to have a limited government, we need to be fiscally conservative. Those were not things that Republicans were talking about prior to 2012. This is the same the vanguard Republicans prior to that, you know, think George Bush era, like money was never an issue. Like we need to invade Afghanistan, we need to invade Iraq. If you criticize or or skeptical about any of those things, you're a traitor. You know, those those were big and, and immigration, right? Those were the big galvanizing points of conservative Republicans in the 2000s. They were not yeah. talking about limited government, balanced budgets prior to Ron Paul in 2012. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, the Republican Party, at least since Reagan, has had a libertarian element to it, right? So, like, sure. uh, you know, Reagan was a Goldwater fan. Goldwater was a libertarian. Um, and that element i think existed prior to ron paul but i think you're right that ron paul we we were at a point in our country where the republicans no longer kind of talked about that it was no longer like viewed as a good valuable talking point george bush has something he called compassionate conservatism which yeah, we should be fiscally conservative, but we should also be compassionate. And he used that to justify every social program you could think of and wars and all that stuff. So yep. um, it, it, Ron Paul really kind of brought it back to that Goldwater base of like, no, we actually have to, um, you know, slash the government, destroy, you know, uh, get rid of the department of education, you know, let's just get this thing down to nothing and, and, uh, and really get to a true libertarian ideal. And, then it, it definitely took off with the Tea yep. Party moving yep. up. And I would argue like those are fantastic things. Like we should be talking about being fiscally conservative. We shouldn't just be spending, you know, to and we shouldn't be involved in all these different wars, all these foreign entanglements, you know, hey, and and people starting to have a real conversation about, hey, what is the CIA like what 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 do they do exactly that that benefits the like like who are they working for like when they like i did not prior to ron paul i didn't know about the shah of iran and the cia's involvement in overthrowing i didn't know that the cia was involved in so many different in foreign entanglements like helping to establish dictators yeah. people that were friendly to our corporations like yeah all, the history of the cia and iran are is an amazing history and when you hear iranians chant death to america like that's that's one of those things where obviously i don't agree with it but at the same time i understand it like i i understand why they're chanting death to america because yeah what we've done to that country through our cia is shocking and it's still going on to this day i mean we're still assassinating people from that country we're still like we we since the 1950s it's like we have intentionally destroyed their country over and over and over again. And yeah, people, people don't realize that, but study the history of the CIA and, and um, Iran. It is Which, a horrible history. Going, going back to two thousands, Uber conservatism, it's because they hate us and our freedom. Like we just, our lives are so much better and they're just jealous. Cause they're, cause they ain't yeah, us. Yeah. Like, 
as a George Bush. <laughs> the Sean Hannity, Bill O'Reilly. Oh man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, all that's all that smoke and mirrors. But so Ron Paul opened like it, it was okay yeah, to be conservative and, and be critical of the government. Right. Yeah. And I will say that's I I said at the beginning, I love Ron Paul and I do to this day. Like, I love that. Like, I think that our foreign policy has been insane and he rightfully sees that it's insane. I think that our CIA has been crazy infringements on our freedoms and our way of life. And I think that that criticism is absolutely needed. And his bravery on that is incredibly important. Um, and I think a lot of his concerns about government programs and, and that stuff, I, I think there's he's got a lot of insights on that stuff. Um, my objection, I'm sure you're going to get to objections on libertarianism, yep. but my objections is not to any necessarily even the specifics of, of Ron Paul or or anyone libertarian my objection is to the overall philosophy that underpins it and i think that gets into yep. some of the social questions that we're talking about and yep. some of the concerns well, that that go there but uh, yeah go well, ahead we're, we're good yeah, but but yeah like you very appreciative i will always be grateful to ron paul for allowing conservative he gave conservatives a license to be skeptical of the government because i'm telling you somebody who lived through the 2000s you did not, if you were a conservative Christian, you were not, it was, if you were critical of the government, like they, that was a, you were a minority in conservative Christian circles. That was not something that you did. And Ron Paul gave you a license to do that. Yeah. A lot of people don't realize like conservatives actually supported the Patriot Act. Yep. With ridiculous levels of support. I mean, yep. like Democrats signed off on it, but it was conservatives that pushed it. And yep. now in retrospect, it's like, that was psychotic. Like it was what insane. Were we doing? Yeah. Like, and, and now we're stuck with it. And that was a conservative movement, which would never happen today. You know, like to, today, the conservatives would be laying down in the street to avoid that act, but <laughs> we hope so anyway. Right. Yeah. Um. So, yeah. So then the, we've talked about the good. Now we'll talk about the bad. So the, Ron Paul also introduced into conservative circles, this idea of taking laissez-faire free market approaches to social issues. That was not something that was really done before. So Ron Paul and libertarians have always supported drug legalization. They don't really have a stance on abortion. They've never, if you look at the libertarian party's official platform, it does not, it does not have a stance on abortion. It just says that we need to be able to have different we need to have room for people of different opinions on this matter so no stance on abortion yeah now it's worth in ron paul's defense he personally is pro-life he he argues there's a libertarian case for banning abortion which is the protection of rights of the individual babies and so and his son rand also holds that view rand is not quite as libertarian as his dad but he's very libertarian um and both of them are are very vocal pro-lifers um, on libertarian yes. grounds. Like they're they're in those libertarian pro. No, and thank yeah, thank you for that context. Yeah, I just certainly don't want to malign Ron Paul's stance on on abortion, but the the laissez-faire approach on the yeah the libertarian other social as issues. a whole actually tends to be pro-choice. That's the yeah, weird yeah. thing is they they tend to be okay with abortion because they yeah Ron it. Paul's kind of the minority yeah. on that issue right. in libertarian yeah. circles yeah and then on then regarding things like gay marriage 
libertarians have always argued that the state does not need to be regulating relationships. We don't need to have bans on if people, if two people want to, as long as they're not hurting anybody else, who cares what they do, right? If they want to do drugs, they want to have gay relationships. Who, who cares? We should not be regulating those things. Yeah. So then that was a big, there was a, there was pushback when the gay marriage issue went to the Supreme Court. Of course, you had conservative Christians that said, absolutely not, we can't do this. But there, but there was, and maybe surprising to a lot of people, but there was a lot of conservative Christians that had adopted this sort of laissez-faire libertarian separation of church and state attitude and said, well, we shouldn't care about gay marriage. We should, I don't want it in my church, but I don't care if it's in my government. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I connect the modern phenomenon of drag shows for children and the sexualization of children in public schools. I connect that to the gay marriage acceptance from what was that just over 10 years ago? Uh, what is that? A, is that a direct connection? Do you think, or am I, making too much of that no i think it absolutely is a direct connection i mean you can study where all this stuff came from but i mean like the um the exact same organizations that were pushing gay marriage um as soon as gay marriage got um pushed through the supreme court in 2015 they literally flipped their chairs around and started working on the trans stuff. And I mean, it's, it's the same exact organization. So yeah, the, the line is not hard to follow. It's a direct, very direct line. Yep. Yep. And, and, and I think the conservatives that went, went along because of libertarian laissez-faire ideas on social issues are part of the problem. And now we've gone so far but they've adopted this separation of church and state philosophy so much that we can't, we can't, now we're in this place where we can't really do anything. We're, we don't feel, a lot of conservative Christians don't feel morally justified in pushing back against this stuff because they don't well, know where to draw yeah. the line. And if you'll notice like how most conservatives to this day are pushing against the, the um, trans stuff in school, there's, they're doing it with a libertarian bent. They'll say, Listen, these are kids. Like kids need to be protected. I don't care if you're an adult and you do this stuff. I don't care if you have a drag show or whatever if you're an adult, but like for the kids, I'm against that. So that's a libertarian bent for that. Like that's not what if you go back 50 years ago, go back to the night just the 1980s. I mean, you go back just 30, 40 years or whatever that is. People would be like, "No, that that should be illegal." Like that you should not have you know, people walking through the street dressed in drag, right? Like this is bad for society. It's bad. Like you shouldn't, shouldn't do that. Now we're like, oh, I don't care. As long as you're an adult, I just don't want the kids doing it. Like that, that's a, it's, a, a giant shift in conservative Christian people have changed their view on, it, on that. This, it, this is so important, Lewis. This point you're making, conservative political apologetics is all about secular libertarian I values that they appeal to. It is not religious or this idea that God is real and he has moral standards that we need to adhere to. That's never part of the conversation now. It's always yeah. 
appealing to libertarian secular ideas instead because we have to maintain the separation of church and state for some reason. Yeah. 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 Which is, is crazy as you think about like separation of church and state and our constitution, et cetera. Um, well, if that stuff really need to be, it's kind of like the, the whole Obergfell uh, ruling of the SCOTUS for, for gay marriage. It's like, Oh, you just discovered that that's what the founding fathers intended. Like you just discovered <laughs> 230 years later that, Oh, by the way, they meant for dudes to be able to marry each other. Like that was they. it's, it's crazy that we just discovered that's what uh, Madison meant when he wrote the constitution. Um, you know, like it's, it's, and I feel like the same thing of like, if this, if separation of church and state is what we think it is now, where we have to let dudes walk down the street and celebrate their whatever their uh, love for stuffed animals um, while dressed in no clothes. Like if that's what it is, why didn't people 50 years ago know that? Like, why didn't people a hundred years ago know that? Like, if that's what it is, and that's what did we because just discover? They, like, is because they were bigots. They were racist, <laughs> misogynistic bigots. Lewis, we're we're more yeah. enlightened now. We live in the modern yeah. era. Yeah, we we know better. Yep. yep. That's yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. I th I think, and one one of the reasons why. Christians can't get out of this hole they've dug themselves into is because they have a weird, it kind of, they're kind of embarrassed by biblical law. We have the, the, when, when you talk about theonomy, theonomy is the idea that you take mosaic law, the law of the old Testament of the Bible and apply it to a secular society People, people say, well, no, you can't do that. I just actually, I was watching uh, Benjamin Boyce interviewing Neil Shav, Shav I'm going to mispronounce his name, Shanvi, who uh, Neil is a conservative Christian and talking about Christian conservative politics and how like, well, we don't, we don't want to impose Christianity. That's not what we want to do because we can't, we can't force people to convert into Christianity. That's not the that's not theonomy at all. Our founding fathers, and I'm talking about people who like founded this the American states, the colonies, like the American Puritans. They have, and we'll we'll maybe we'll get into like I guess a, a little bit of a religious conversation. Will they were theonomists? They believed in God's law. They believed in imposing it on their governments, but they did not banish if you were catholic or whatever and you're living in a puritan colony you couldn't hold public office but they didn't they didn't force you to leave they didn't force you to convert to to renounce your catholicism i would and i argue the reason for that is because they believe in the doctrine of election the idea that god picks his people right we can't pick him we have to be elected to salvation. So if our Puritan founders had that understanding, they would know that, well, he's Catholic, but he he may be Catholic or he may be a different religion because he's not elected. And God is still calling us to love our neighbors in spite of the fact that they're elected or not. So we have to make room for them in our society, which is why we have a Christian idea of tolerance 
but it's, it's very different from the idea of the modern idea of tolerance. But, but back to my original point, because we misunderstand what theonomy is, this idea of using God's law in secular societies, we can't have a real conversation. We, we have to, we Christians, we have to keep appealing to these libertarian ideas about protecting children for, for reasons. I'm not sure what, how they, how, how they actually justify that without appealing to religion, without appealing to God, but they, they, they're not making much headway. Yeah. And I think, um, one of the fundamental philosophical issues I have with kind of libertarian concepts being applied to social questions um, is that it's that whole idea that I said at the beginning was kind of the case for libertarianism, which is like, you don't mess with me. I don't mess with you. Right. Um, that sounds good. And there's an element of truth to it. Um, but it gets very complicated. So it, it gets complicated in what messes with you, right? So like if <laughs> if if I am living next door to you and I, you know, I'm having giant orgies every day and there's a constant stream of men and women coming out every single day, you know, loud noises that, you know, like you just constantly are seeing this out and I'm, and I'm, um, you know, the people wave to your kids as, as they're walking out or whatever. And does that affect you? And the answer is, yeah, it absolutely affects you. It's, it's something you have to explain to your kids. It's something your kids might be like, think is an acceptable way of life. It changes your society. It changes you as a human being. It changes, like there's a giant effect that that has um, to have someone next door doing that, even if they don't physically come into your yard even if they don't physically mess with you or your family, they're, they're affecting your, you and your family. Like yep. just that, that public nature of their behavior is absolutely affecting your family. So should that be legal? Like, should that be okay? And I think the libertarian standpoint says, yeah, you're adults, you can do whatever you want, but like stepping back on the whole principle of you don't mess with me, I don't mess with you, but you are messing with me. Like if you yeah. are next door to me and my kids and you're having giant orgies and people coming in and out and promoting this as a way of life, that's going to affect me and my kids. Like, yeah. and so, so like that whole libertarian idea kind of falls apart at that level and drugs is another one you, where it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got, we legalize drugs. So like, I'm going to have an opium den, den in my basement <laughs> and we're going to have people just like the worst addicts in the world are going to be coming in out of my basement but don't worry lucas we won't yep. mess with you or your family pa passing like, out in my yard yeah. not your yard yeah we'll make sure that they pass out in my yard um does that affect you yeah absolutely like it, it does and so then there's a libertarian aspect where the application of libertarianism and even like divorce laws so like we on the basis of libertarian ideas we went from having fairly difficult divorce laws. It used to be hard to get a divorce. I mean, people don't realize that, but it used to be, you had to like request a divorce. And I could say, you know, my wife wanted to divorce me. I could reject her request or she could reject my request. And I would have to make the case of why I should get divorced. I'd have to go in front of a judge. And we changed all that based on libertarians. Like, Oh, I don't, you know, if I don't want to be married to her, I don't have to be married to her. Right. So like that, we liberalize that and we liberalize that on, based on libertarian ideas of, of, of that. But then the question is like, 
Does that really not affect other people? If I divorce my wife, does that not affect other people? Does that not affect society as a whole? Am I not like um, changing people's view of the permanency of marriage? Does that not hurt my children? Um, and yes. you know, study after study shows that it does hurt children to have divorced yes. parents. Um, does it not hurt society that my children grow up poor and are more likely to take welfare as a result of being poor because I dumped my wife and left her uh, without you know four kids yep. or whatever? Yep. Like, does that does so those that libertarian idea when you think about it, like you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, is an incredibly individualistic idea. Like it's an incredible, it's this idea that I only affect me and you only affect you. As long as we don't bump into each other, we're good. Is, is this idea that we're not connected and we are it's, connected. Like we are connected. We're all connected to each other. And so you can't take that simplistic idea. It's like, it's like a political system for making a way for narcissistic egoists to coexist together. Yeah. It's <laughs> so. Yeah, like, uh, and like, how libertarian will you be if your neighbor builds starts building a nuclear reactor in their basement? H right. How much of a libertarian are you still going to be? It's, yeah, like you said, taking this stuff to its extremes points out the flaws behind these ideas. This idea that we can we coexist and we can if we do things on our own personal property, it doesn't affect those around us. It most certainly does. It most certainly does. Yeah, and. And we're feeling the ramifications of those ideas being so deeply permeated and adhered to. And because we've seeded theonomist arguments, we don't, we we're very against, you know, Christians are very against the for the most part. It's hard to have conversations about Christians and God's law and you, people just won't get over the separation of church and state idea, yeah. which um, I don't know how that's justified biblically. My, uh, and you know, you say taking it to extremes, and I mentioned like orgies and opium dens, and opium dem, dens, and that kind of stuff. Those seem extreme, but let me give a real practical example of something that is is not extreme at all. It's from real life. So I know someone from my church, and she and her husband, very simple people, earnest people, conservative but not intellectuals at all. You know, just kind of regular people working in regular jobs, um, kind of oblivious to the culture wars and that kind of stuff. They don't know that. Um, her daughter got really into YouTube videos and all of a sudden is not sure she's a, a daughter anymore and not sure she's a girl anymore. And the my friend from church is like shocked. It's like, what is going on? Like, how did this happen? Like, what is going And and like it's destroying her life and destroying her daughter's life and destroying her husband's life. And their family is like fraying from this and incredible damage. Like I can't think of more damage you could do to a group of people than what has happened to them. And it happened purely based on libertarian ideas. It happened because the free adults that made YouTube allowed free adults to make videos about changing genders right. it and created free adults to do great videos that created free adults to allow their kids to watch youtube blame on the parents right they allow well, free they freely allow their kids to watch youtube and then the kid discovered this and it caused incredible destruction and is is that 
libertarianism? Is it libertarian to do what has happened and destroyed their family? Like it's like, I would argue it's the, all those free adult decisions actually were harming people. Like pornography, like it's, it is crazy. It, it should be crazy to us that a 12 year old can just hop on their smartphone and whatever flavor of pornography they want to view it's it's and there's no and there's no legal repercussions either for having this type of content of readily available for and if kids view it like and you didn't put the proper safeguards in place like that's not even that's not even a conversation like it's like well it's you know it's a company it's adults doing things that they freely want to do for other adults viewing pleasure. So, you know, like just keep, you know, if you want to keep your kids off of it, that's your personal responsibility. But as a society, we have to allow this to exist. And the amount of damage that pornography is doing is ridiculous. I mean, like just the, the amount of harm that that's doing the experiment that that is on a whole generation of, of boys. I mean, that's really, in the last 20 years, really, yep. um, you know, when you grew up in the nineties or the eighties and yeah, there was some porn out there, but it was hard to get. You had to it hide was it. It was limited. Yeah. It was. And so if you looked at it at all, it was rare and it was now it's like, there's kids that will watch that all day, every day, you know, and, yep. and it's and, like and a as constant a, flow as a child of the two thousands. Yeah, like it, it was starting to become more accessible, but you still like you didn't I didn't have I didn't have a smartphone back then, like you would still have to try and like sneak onto the family computer and try and do it in a way where you weren't going to get found out whatever like it was still it like the the modern iteration of pornographic access is just insane. And again, libertarians, if you're if you're a libertarian, you don't have a moral standing to fight against that. Yeah, and what libertarians, even Christian conservatives, are like, well, Lewis, you got you know, this on the parents. They have to put you know protections in place. They can't. We can't ban porn. We got to put it's the parents. So it's like all this blame on the parents. You know, like oh, the parents. You know, and as a parent, and I'm sure you you see this as well. Although your kids are younger than mine, but like, it's incredibly hard to control. Like you can't control your kids. You can't control what they see. Like, and these technology companies work hard to not allow you to control like they they work they they make it so that the kids can get around what you do and and even if you control all your devices they walk next door and the other parent did not control their devices and so the the boy next door shows them everything they want to see and so it's the idea that a parent can control this is insane they they can't yep it's and, and so Liber- the the theme of this episode is libertarianism sucks and for two main reasons the what we're talking about right now it's moral failings it does it does not feel the need to impose any sort of convictions religious or otherwise on a society as long as the parties engaged are adults and they're not hurting anybody they're not robbing anybody they're not committing acts of violence against other people if that's if if it's not not those cases then you know whatever goes goes and that as we discussed leads to all the different types of problems that we talked about and many more and many more the other reason why i think libertarianism's libertarianism sucks is because of what it's done to our ideas about 
currency, about the Fed, and about Bitcoin. I think a large reason why Bitcoin became so popular is because of libertarian ideas. We need a cryptocurrency. We need a technology that isn't that's decentralized, that is not controlled by a central entity, government or otherwise, that allows people to exchange value anonymously, be, being able to deal with a currency that isn't subject to any of those types of oversights. Great idea at, at the surface level that we're talking about here. In practice, so I, I've mentioned before, I work in, in cyber insurance and one of the, when a, a hacker takes over your company's network, they take all your passwords and lock you out. They'll make an extortion demand, you know, hey, you're going to have to pay me to get the keys to your network back. What's the currency that they want to get paid in? Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies. Now, people might say, well, like it's cryptocurrencies, it's all public information, so you can still trace it. No, you can't because of the crypto mixers. I don't know if you saw Tornado Cash has been in the news lately. Have you seen that? Tornado Cash is a service. You can take your cryptocurrency and take it to a crypto mixer service provider like Tornado Cash and put it into their system to it's basically what they're doing is they're laundering the money. They take it, they trans, they move it around to all these different places and then put it in a different wallet for you. So then it's un so you can't trace the transactions because like the block. Interesting. One of the, yeah. Yeah. So like the blockchain, you're supposed to be able to, if I use my Bitcoin wallet and give five Bitcoin to your Lewis, your Bitcoin wallet on the blockchain, you can see that transaction in real time. And everybody has everybody's. So the way Bitcoin is set up, everybody's servers affirms that that transaction took place and it's there in the public domain with crypto mixers. They take it and take your current, your crypto and transact it to all kinds of different places, uh, separate it. And then at the end, they put it in a plate, in a wallet, a different wallet. So that now they can't trace that transaction anymore. Um, it's it's been okay. a great way yeah. for people who deal in black market stuff to stay outside the purview of legal enforcement. So this might be one of the points that we're going to disagree on this. Okay. So let me um, and I don't know if your view. This is the first time we've talked about it, but um, I when it comes to like libertarianism, um, I am absolutely in favor of anonymity from the government. Um, and I'm absolutely in favor of being able to do a financial transaction and have the government have no record of that and um, to um, complete blocking of records of financial transactions. And now I obviously I'm not for bank robberies or, or that kind right, of thing. Right. Um, but on the other hand, like I, I think there is a certain level of my my concern with um, the government and where I I like Ron Paul or Ron uh, Paul and I I like um, some of the libertarian sentiments is my concern with the government is real 
that especially with um, our current administration, our current culture that hasn't is so religiously idiotic, right? Yes. Um, the idea of giving them power to see everything we do and to summarize every thought that we have in our mind, every financial transaction, round it up, tax it, um, limit it, restrict it, um, control all those things terrifies me. Right. Like I want this government to know nothing about me. I want, <laughs> I want, I want to cut up my credit cards and do everything in cash and to wear disguises when I go in stores. So there's no one that ever knows what I do. Like I want that anonymity. And I think um, the, the risk, there is a downside to that, which is people commit crimes and it hurts people from that end. But in my mind, the, um, danger of government oppression that has happened many times just in the last 100 years. You know, you just go back to um, starting with the Russian revolution, you go to China, you go to so many different countries, um, the amount of government um, oppression that is real and dangerous um, that can be a can be avoided with some privacy rules. And I'm a big advocate of online privacy. Um, I think is important. So that, that I don't know, yeah. maybe you agree with all that. Maybe you don't agree with that, I, but that's why like from a Bitcoin standpoint, I have a lot of problems with Bitcoin. Um, I, and one is like th the opposite of your concern is I, I think it's not anonymous enough. Um, not because you can't be anonymous. Like if you're using tornado or you're like an expert on like how to use a Bitcoin wallet and that kind of stuff, maybe you can stay anonymous, but for the average Joe, Bitcoin's worthless because they use Coinbase or something, right? So like it's it's worthless because yeah, using, it doesn't doesn't offer privacy. So using a, a centralized yeah. financial institution to engage in a decentralized right. ecosystem that's antithetical to the whole reason why you're a Bitcoin holder to begin with. Right. If you're using Coinbase or any other uh, financial institution, these for to to do your online wallet and everything, well that that's part of the problem. So I so. Yeah, I agree with most of what you said there. Like, yeah, I think you should have a right to privacy. Like, and we saw like with the whole Canadian trucker envoy, being able to donate in cryptocurrency was a great thing. Now the people who used Coinbase and other that other centralized financial institutions that listen to government mandates to shut down the wallets and all those things like, but because again, you're not using the, the financial institution, you're not using the cryptocurrency correctly. You should have your own wallet that only you have the password to, right? So I'm not saying that Bitcoin is completely bad, like there's some good things, but it's libertarian ideas on monetary policy. They've given us these ideas that I don't think are actually true. So like the dollar is going to go to zero tomorrow if we don't stop with our inflationary spending. Now, I, I am concerned about inflation, but I would argue that the government does not create the majority of inflation simply for, for the simple fact that we live in a credit-based economy. When your bank creates a loan, when your bank give, I was explaining this to somebody the other day. If you go and apply for a credit card, they give you a $30,000 limit on that credit card. I asked him, do you think that they have $30,000 sitting in the bank waiting for you as you use your credit card? It's now being debited against this $30,000 that they have sitting at the bank. No, 
they created that credit limit out of out of thin air, right? That money never existed before. Bank, financial institutions create the majority of our money, not the government. The government does have inflate does do inflationary things. I'm not saying that they don't, but we because we associate inflation only with what governments do. We don't under it, it, it. It's hard to have a conversation about banks and what they do and how we should keep them accountable. We there's a little bit there's a tiny conversation that happens in libertarian circles about fractional reserve system and whether or not that's a good thing or not. But in large part, whenever you talk about inflation, it's always oh the Fed is doing this, the Fed is doing that's that's a very small part of the inflation conversation. Liberty and I. I fault libertarians for dumbing down the conversation about that. So we can't have a true conversation about what's actually happening. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. This is an area you and I have talked offline about quite a bit. And it's something that you got me thinking a lot about, because I think I did have a, a purely libertarian sense of, of this. And I'm, I, I've appreciated your additional dynamic there. Um, I think I still, am more libertarian on this subject than sure. you are um, in that I do, I have profound concerns about the amount of printing um, and currency that has been added to the circulation over the last 20 years. Um, and I, I do agree with you on the fractional reserve. And I do agree with you that there's some concerns there. Um, I do think that the potential for hyperinflation, um, which you know, so people know hyperinflation is when your currency reduces in value rapidly. There's no hard definition, but sometimes there'll be prices will double every day or whatever, and you know, or thousands of percent uh, interest or uh, inflation, you know, on a regular basis every month or something. Um, the concern, the potential for that, I think, expands greatly when you have a government that promises to cover all loans that um, promises to hand out money if people need more money. There's a funny uh, old Saturday Night Live episode with uh, Dan Aykroyd um, playing Jimmy Carter. They had bad inflation in the 1970s. And he's like, isn't inflation great? You know, inflation's your friend. He's like, we can, we'll make millionaires of everybody. You know, wouldn't it be great to buy a $500,000 suit? Wouldn't it be great to smoke <laughs> a $50 cigar? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't you love that? And and then he says, but I know what you're thinking. He's like, people that are on fixed incomes uh, will be hurt. Well, we'll fix that. We'll hand out more money. And we'll <laughs> give, you know, so, And in some ways we've adopted that as a society. Like we, our government spends more than we, we take in every year and does it by epic amounts. And that gets added. There's currency and inflation that gets added over and over and over again. And the if it was purely, let's go to a libertarian model that doesn't is not concerned about your your statement on the fractional reserve, there's still the the lack of printing, the lack of additional currency from the government does put a check on that a little bit mm -hmm. because you're forced when you when you go to a bank, it used to be we were always worried about banks. Right. Like it used to be people didn't trust banks. You know, the banks, if you look at a modern day building of a bank, it looks like a sh shopping mall or whatever. They're ugly. <laughs> they're small. 
there's there's you know nobody even thinks about like a bank having to be a respectable institution like we're we're on paypal or whatever it's like these new startups people like put their money in robin hood that's like how do they make money we don't know it doesn't matter why doesn't it matter <laughs> because the government insures it all right yes so yeah, like yeah. like the which is a tacit printing of money right so the government says if they burn all their money we will give you more money right, right. like we'll we'll cover it so that undermines everything, right? It inflates it, it as a, if I'm a borrower, I don't care where Robinhood is making their money or how they get their money. If I'm, and I say borrowing, I'm using them as a financial institution. It doesn't matter. Like I can put my money in, in whatever. I'll go to the local Huntington bank and put my money in the Huntington bank, even though the building hasn't been painted in a month or in years. And there's the sidings falling off and the you know, it looks terrible. You know, someone could rob it tomorrow, but guess what? All my deposits I make over there are insured by the government. And I think when you unhinge, when there's no backing of the dollar, there's no promise that, um, that there, there's nothing solid behind it. And if, if we need more dollars tomorrow, the government will give us more dollars tomorrow. When that's the promise, then everything else balloons even worse, right? So there's always, whenever you have the fractional reserve question, there's ballooning of the amount of currency in, in um, circulation, like you said, you know, you borrow, yep. you borrow from your credit card company or whatever, and there's gonna be a ballooning of the currency. But if everyone knows that there's a restriction on, there's a limit to that, right? Yep. Everybody realizes there's a limit. I'm concerned about where I put my money, the, credit card company is concerned where they put their money. The banks are concerned. The people giving to the banks are concerned. Everybody's worried. And there's a limit, right? There's a limit on that, on the dollar. There's a limit on that when, when it has to be backed up. But when we all know that tomorrow the government can give everybody, like if, if Chase bank goes, goes bankrupt, the government will cover us all. We'll be fine. Like as a society, we'll be fine because the government will cover it. And I think that does contribute to inflation and can contribute really badly. And, you know, I, I could list five or six societies in recent history that have had major hyperinflation that have destroyed. I mean, right now it's going on in, in South America. Is it Colombia or, or Argentina oh, yep. uh, um, is, is having horrible inflation problems right now and it's it just happens over and over again and i think part of that is an unhinging of the government policy i think the fractional reserve question always happens to some degree or another that's almost unavoidable um but i think the the government policy is something we absolutely can control and we should control and if it's not backed by something we're in trouble so you're and what you're talking about, the unhinging of like, let's just pr- let's just print whatever we need whenever we need it. That actually has that there is a serious conversation about that. And that's called modern monetary theory. If you look up modern monetary theory, uh, Stephanie Kelton is the biggest proponent of that idea. She's given several talks on it. Interesting ideas. She pokes holes in the idea that creating money like when the government creates money, create whether that's through treasury bills, whatever. It, 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 people have always argued there's a direct correlation between the government printing and inflation. And she does, it's a very interesting take, like she pokes holes through that. 
I don't fully agree with her. And, and the and the, the biggest problem I have with modern monetary theory is I don't understand how they check inflation. I don't know that they they really address inflation at all. Uh, which I, and I am worried about. I don't, I don't want people to get the wrong idea that I don't care about inflation. I do. I do. I just don't know. So here, here's kind of where I, my, so I, I'm a recovering libertarian. I was like, yes, the dollar has to be fully backed by gold, which, uh, you know, my earlier example of a credit card, how does that happen if every dollar is fully backed by something? How, ex, how accessible is credit in that type of society? But that, that we'll, we'll have to talk about that another time. Um, Japan was a big conundrum to me. So Japan, since the 1990s, has done several, you know, we talk about quantitative easing in here in America, where the Federal Reserve just creates bank reserves to give to our U.S. financial institutions to help shore up their balance sheets. Japan has been doing that since the 1990s. And, and I've I, libertarians were always talking about how quantitative easing, that's the source of inflation. That's what's going to destroy us. Well, you look at the Japan and the Japanese yen, it hasn't hyperinflated. And they, the, we talk about the debt to GDP ratio in America, like it's 130%. It's startling that our debt is worth more than our GDP, or is bigger than our GDP, right? In Japan, it's over 300%. The Japanese yen is not a world's reserve currency. If you hear that term used a lot, that's a world's reserve currency. The majority of global financial transactions happen in US dollars, right? So that's one thing that the dollar has going for it is there is a global demand for dollars. You need dollars to make transactions happen on a global level. Japanese yen is not a world's reserve currency. So the question begs itself, if everything that libertarians say about monetary policy is true, how does the Japanese has the Japanese yen retained any value within the over the, look at their monetary policy that they've engaged in for over 30 years? How does the Japanese yen maintain any value? That's not to say that what we do or what Japan has done is not inflationary. It is, but the correlation is not as direct or as obvious as libertarians make it out to be. And I hate to be arguing the libertarian position. <laughs> the episode subject is libertarian sucks and Lewis will be defending. Therefore, Lewis sucks. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, but I'm going to, uh, because I think we agree on the social side of libertarianism yes. quite a and bit. We, and, we, and, I, and I actually do agree on, I can get into the parts of the financial side that I, I am not libertarian at all. Um, but on the monetary policy, I think I am fairly libertarian. Um, not, I wouldn't say there's a direct uh, uh, one-to-one -one immediate impact. Um, I think there's, it, the way I've understood what happens with inflation is that it's it works a lot like a doctor scale um, where you go to the doctor and it's got those weights on the top of it and you push it over and nothing happens and you push it over and nothing happens you push it over nothing happens like and and you keep pushing that and the the weight never drops and then you get to your actual weight and all of a sudden it drops all the way and smashes against the the bottom of the scale 
and it happens like that. And it's like, holy crap, like how did that happen? And I think that's is a little bit like that for inflation, where you'll see countries like Venezuela, where Hugo Chavez, like everybody loved him. Like he economy's getting better, everything's getting better. Like you know, he's this hero of of everybody because you know, he's, he figured it out. Like he's got, and you see uh, like Michael Moore go down there and he's like, this should be a model for the United States. And then <laughs> boom, they had hyperinflation. Right. So like, and it just, it happened overnight and they couldn't stop it. And like, you tried to raise interest rates or whatever. And like, all of a sudden it just got out of control to the point where they had like guns in the street and people starving and like Mad Max situation down there for a while. Um, and I think it's still bad. Uh, Venezuela, similar situation in Venezuela, or uh, Zimbabwe, similar situation in Zimbabwe, Weimar Republic, you know, similar situation. So I would say in the US, we're right now, we're pushing that scale. We're like, hey, we just inflated the dollar, nothing happened. Like we, uh, inflation went down, like, oh my goodness, we're at 2% inflation. That's great. Like we're, we're just, <laughs> we printed, we doubled our, our money and nothing happened. And we keep doing it. And every time we do it, nothing happens someone like AOC comes out and or modern monetary policy, like we did this and nothing bad happened and all so let's good go stuff. Full, so let's full do tilt. it more. Right. So let's, and, but the way I would push back on that is to do a simple thought experiment. A simple thought experiment is kind of the SNL episode I just referenced. Right? A simple thought experiment is okay. Well, if this is true, why am I not a trillionaire? Like, please give me a trillion dollars and give you a trillion. Why can't we all be trillionaires? And like, let's everybody get a trillion dollars. Like, why can't the government do that tomorrow? Like, why can't we print a trillion dollars for everybody tomorrow? And then we're all rich, right? Like that, if that's the case, that should work great. But we all know what would happen. Like if a trillion dollars showed up in your ATM tomorrow, you would retire immediately. And then you'd say, now with my trillion dollars, I'm going to go on vacation. And you call the hotel to get a great vacation spot in the Bahamas, but no one answers the phone because they're, they're all trillionaires, trillionaires too. too, right? <laughs> and they're actually also calling, right? And the and you jump try to get on a, a taxi to the airport and the taxi driver is a trillionaire and he's not driving to the airport anymore, except for to take himself there. And you show up at the airport and all the pilots are trillionaires and all the, like, that's where like hyperinflation is a real deal. Um, but again, it's little by little. Right now, we all still have faith in the dollar. We all trust the dollar. We all trust the currency. But what happens eventually in Venezuela and happened in Russia and happened in Zimbabwe and happened in Weimar Republic and happens over and over again. What happens is people go from saying, yeah, with two bucks, I can buy a loaf of bread. Oh, it's, only, it's up to 220 now. I can still buy a loaf of bread. But what happens is people realize, oh, I can't get a loaf of bread even if I drop $10 on it. I could, you know, uh, like it's going to take me $100 to get that loaf of bread. And then all of a sudden it's like, maybe I could give something else for that loaf of bread. What if I gave you, you know, what if I gave you a, a, a gold coin yes. for, for that loaf of bread? And then it's like, yeah, no problem. Here's a loaf of bread. Give me the gold coin. And then all of a sudden that dollar becomes, it goes from being valuable, maybe a little less valuable, inflation creeping up, it's 8% or whatever. You know, it goes from 8% to a million percent. 
right? Like yeah. it's go, you know, like it, it's, it, it becomes ridiculous. And so that's my pushback on that is like a thought experiment of what happens if we print enough. So, you know, we printed whatever we print. Let's do a thought experiment, I'll multiply that number by 10, by 20, by 30, by 40. When does it get to the point where we're all trillionaires and nobody wants to work and therefore to pay someone to work, you need something other than dollars? Correct. Uh, yes, I totally agree with that. And that's, I think that's why modern monetary theory fails. Now, what I would, but I, what, why I don't fully subscribe to that idea is because in practice, how is money actually created going back to the credit card example? So yeah, the bank gave me a $30,000 credit limit. That money was created out of thin air, but that money was created on the basis that I'm going to use that money and pay interest on it, right? There's a, there's, you're talking about what is that, what is the dollar doing? The dollars that the bank created, that's my liability, right? I'm liable for the dollars I spend, but my credit is an asset to the bank, right? Should we be concerned that governments can print money away, whatever? Yeah, we should, but they're not incentive. They're not naturally incentivized to do that, especially because of banks. If everybody had a trillion dollars tomorrow, paid the banks are now all paid off they no longer have financial instruments in place that they're accruing interest on they're going to be really upset now their balance sheets are completely inverted they have no way of making money now they they just receive all the loans have been paid now credit is gone that that's a big big problem for financial institutions they they don't want that to happen their banks financial institutions are naturally incentivized to not want rampant runaway inflation government printing to happen, which, and it's good that banks create the majority of dollars instead of the Department of Treasury or the Federal Reserve. Well, uh, let me, let me, I, and man, I hate to be, again, I'm pushing back <laughs> on this stuff. This is like turned into a debate. <laughs> no, it's all right. And I'll, I'll push back this, this one last time and then we can talk about, I've got other concerns about libertarianism. We can jump back on that, but let me, let me push back a little bit there. Um, and this is a topic for a future, um, future podcast that we we've talked about. Banks are not just banks anymore. Banks are corporations and corporations can make money a lot of different ways. Yep. And banks proper might lose money from hyperinflation. But there's a lot of other businesses out there. There's a lot of other organizations. There's a lot of other ways that a corporation can make money other than one of their business models. You know, right? So, you know, the classic is General Electric used to own everything. They're a garbage company now, but they used to own washing machines and have financial institutions and do um, you know, uh, motors for cars and do windmills for, for the industry. Like corp modern corporations own a variety of different businesses and banks, if you can make money off inflation and if you're determining what the inflation rate is, which I think banks are through the Federal Reserve, um, you you can absolutely find a way to make money off that. And that's my concern is that the people well, in power, we say, well, they don't have interest to be printing money. They don't. Why are they doing it then? 
Why has the amount of currency doubled in there? Why are we now at 8% inflation? Why even, why did the Fed target 2% inflation? If banks really were running the world, they would want negative inflation, right? Like they would want, they would want that inflation rate to be zero because then they'd make more money. But someone in power is making the decision that some level of inflation, maybe not hyperinflation, but some level of inflation is a good thing. Um, there's there's money to be made that way. And um, I, I, you know, maybe a conspiracy theory or whatever, but like, I don't think that I'm not someone that just says, well, I trust the banks to be this upstanding organization that is just like there to make money. You're like I, off, off the, they bring in our deposits. And, the, you know, one of the interesting things about the banks is like, they're stingy about loaning money. They loan, the bigger the bank, the less they loan money, which yeah. is crazy. You know, the, it should be the opposite, right? But the, because they, they have more safety in numbers or whatever, they should be loaning less of money. But, you know, a giant Chase bank loans at a much lower rate than your local city bank or whatever. Like it just, it, it's, it's a weird thing. And so it's, what, so where are they making their money? They're making their money somewhere. So, so you're, you're alluding to, the biggest problem with the Federal Reserve, which is their swap lines. People are very concerned about the Fed's balance sheet, <clears throat> which there's problem. I'm not trying to minimize the bank reserves that they create and the problems that that produces. I'm not trying to minimize that, but relative to the problem of the Federal Reserve swap lines, um, what what is that? If you're a U.S. financial institution and you're like what you're talking about, you're wheeling and dealing, you're making all these financial transactions on a global scale, you're, you, you don't want to take losses. <clears throat> you, you don't want to make a financial transaction, right? You have to accept some risk, but you certainly don't want to take a, a loss if you don't have to. Federal Reserve swap lines are a great, great way for you to avoid that. Federal Reserve swap line, you're able to use the Federal Reserve's overnight service swap your financial transactions onto their swap lines and in and then you take the treasury bills that they have on their balance sheet that they created out of thin air or whatever so then that way your stuff stays safe it's still producing an interest and because of that banks take on more risk they do more risky global things and people have made i think convincing connections between the federal reserve swap line program and financial global collapses. The, the swap line problem is a huge problem. The Federal Reserve should not be doing that. If you're a, or, or if, if they do do it, it needs to be, I don't, it needs to be right. But what's crazy is we don't talk about like the modern Federal Reserve, the mainstream conversations about their Federal Reserve. We're talking about their balance sheet. We're talking about their inflation targets, whatever. And those are, I'm not trying to say that those conversations aren't worth having, but they never talk about their swap line program. And that's a big, that's a big, big problem. That's where a lot of this stuff blows up is because I can take risky crap. I'm, I'm a big global bank. I can take risky crap and give it to the Fed overnight and then figure out what I want to do with it tomorrow. And I'm still earning interest, whatever. I don't mind, I don't mind holding on to this garbage because the Fed lets me swap it and accrue interest. And then I can gamble again tomorrow. It's that, that is crazy. And the Fed yeah. should not be doing that. All right. Um, so I just uh, reestablished myself as a libertarian. <laughs> let me, <laughs> let me uh, go against libertarianism real quick. I know we're running out of time. So let me, uh, let me just make this point real quick. 
of where from a financial standpoint, I think that we've made giant mistakes and, and I touched on it a little bit is I think that the institution of the publicly traded joint stock company, what we now know as modern corporations, I think is a giant problem for society. And I think that it has been set up on libertarian grounds. And I think that it is a society destroying institution. And I know that that's as a subject for a future podcast, yep. but I think that um, the separation of owners and management is something that Adam Smith, the founder of modern capitalism, um, expressed concern about. And it is a giant problem. And I think the more we've allowed it, the, and, the, the and bigger for, the For issue. our listeners, what, what, what you're talking about, Lewis, is the idea that we have a corporate structure where we protect our per, we're protected from our personal liability for business decisions that are done within the confines of that legal institution, the LLC, or like what you're talking about, the joint stock company. The creation of that institution allows people to evade whatever personal responsibility they may have had in engaging in those businesses prior to the inception of that legal entity. And libertarians, man, they love private companies. Yeah. And I, I think I, I love a private solely owned sole proprietor, um, maybe a family business or whatever. I love those. And I'm, I'm very in favor of treating them with libertarian hands off, let them do their thing. These giant corporations are a danger to society and they almost always do a ton of damage and it's based and they're able to do it based on exactly what you talked about. Um, so yep. I, I that's that, maybe that problem wet, wet everybody's appetite for a future podcast. I know we're, we're uh, running up against the wall time-wise here, but uh, yeah. Well, and, and I think you oh, very, just very quickly, I think you could make an argument that if you look at, take theonomy seriously for a second, that sort of legal institution, you could argue, is an affront to a holy God that makes various. I was, I'm actually going through Exodus right now, where over and over and over again, personal liability is mentioned in great detail, grave detail. Yeah. You have to take personal responsibility for this. If you accidentally start a fire, you have to make restitution. If you have custody of something and it gets stolen on your watch, that's a you're still personally liable for like the all these ideas and the LLC like you said helps to avoid those responses we, we we no longer have we're no longer personally liable for those types of decisions if it's done in in the business setting yeah and um the the and we're not going to have time to get into this today the other failing maybe we'll do libertarianism sucks part two <laughs> but the other the idea that capitalism, free markets equals capitalism is such a dumb, overly simplistic idea, and it has been proven false over and over and over and over again. I, I mentioned in a previous podcast, The Mystery of Capital is the name of the book by Hernando de Soto. Mystery of Capital, Why Capitalism Works in the West and Fails Everywhere Else, and just to give a very quick short summary, free markets coupled with jurisprudence. That's why capitalism works. If you are engaging in a marketplace and you do not have legal recourse, 
with the people that you're transacting with, that creates huge problems. Your the trust that a society has in itself, the people who participate in a society, jurisprudence, the which jurisprudence is a the legal system that exists within that society. If I if I buy you know, lemons, you know, I, I buy like 50 lemons from you and you deliver the lemons, there's only 25. And we have this disagreement about what I pay for, whatever, whatever. If we live in a society that has a high level of jurisprudence, I can take you to court about, I can get this uh, society to recognize my problem and help me right this wrong. That's why free markets work is if it's coupled with jurisprudence. But libertarians have dumbed that down to just, oh, if, if people were just free, if people were just free, then prosperity would ensue. No, it doesn't. There's been plenty of studies to prove that it doesn't, yet it is such a prevailing dogmatic part of a libertarian platform and it completely ignores, completely ignores Western, our, our history in the West to build the centuries of jurisprudence that we, we were talking earlier about you getting loud and passionate about so, about the the book we were talking about the last episode. I'm, now I'm starting to get like, I'm very passionate about this. We have centuries of jurisprudence that allows us to engage in the society that we do. And we are just completely ignorant of it. And libertarians do not help with that ignorance at all. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's um, it's, Taking a few good ideas and a few true principles and um, dumbing them down, simplifying them, universalizing them, um, and it, the system as a whole uh, ends up being nonsense and it creates uh, a lot of problems. And also, I think the other problem with libertarianism is I, I you think of someone with like HIV or AIDS um, and they've got no immune system. Um, I think libertarianism has that concern where it's, it, it basically says, Hey, everybody's free to do what they want. And it, you, you lose the fact that there's some bad actors out there and there's some bad forces and there's people that will manipulate and there's people that will abuse and there's people that will do immoral things and that will push immoral stuff on your children. And they'll like that. That's the, well, the libertarianism is like a, a system that assumes that everybody's really nice people on some level. And that if you just let, let everybody be free, it works great. Um, but unfortunately that's not the reality. You know, the reality is that, that people will abuse a system that doesn't have structures in place yes. to hold yes. people accountable. Let, let me ask you this, Lewis, let's say first, just for a thought experiment, you're a neo-Marxist. You've been working in the American college system, trying to promote these, communist ideas of gender studies, like all these different things to try and dismantle the patriarchy, whatever. How thankful, how grateful are you to Ron Paul that has allowed you to really muzzle the conservative voice that was your biggest opposition? Like how, like how fortuitous was it that Ron yeah. Paul and that conversation happened? Yeah. Yeah. There's uh the whole Saul Alinsky idea of using people's own principles against them have absolutely been used by communist uh, Marxists, cultural Marxists um, to 
uh, impose ideas. And then when we push back on them, say, wait, I thought you guys were libertarians. I thought you guys, <laughs> I thought you guys believed in freedom. That's all we're asking for here is freedom. Yeah, we, just, we just want and, equal rights. Yeah, yeah. So, and it, it absolutely has been very helpful for that movement. And not something they really planned for you, but just kind of fell into their lap. Just a very unfortunate, fortuitous uh, yeah. event for them. So yeah, that's, uh, we'll have to, I think we'll have to pick up this conversation again on why libertarianism sucks. Cause I, there's some other things with like, like what you're talking about the, the liber, libertarian love of private corporations is a misfounded love. Mm-hmm. And I'd like to flesh out more about what the federal reserve is actually doing and how the libertarian models don't help us have a better conversation of what the fed is actually like the swap lines should we should be freaking out way more about swap lines than balance sheets but not to say that balance sheets aren't concerning but the swap lines being able to take toxic assets and put them on the u.s federal reserve swap line and then gamble again tomorrow oh that's it's criminal yeah yeah yeah. which which and then to your point wouldn't happen if the if the LLC, like this, this idea of escaping personal liability in the, if you're doing it in for a business structure is ludicrous and immoral as well. Yep. All right. Like, and subscribe, check out our Twitter threads. Uh, Lewis, I forgot to ask you when we had our conversation about Christianity and atheism, and we briefly mentioned the, the Christian subculture of the nineties and two thousands. Did you have a chance to check out the the YouTube playlist I did of the 2000, the Christian music from back. Then. I listened to it a little bit. Yeah, it was, uh, it was good. Like it's, it. it's interesting. It's, uh, it's interesting that Christians have tried to have like their own subculture and, and the, like, is it, is, should, is it worth having? Like, should we, ha- should there be Christian death metal? You know, I, I think which, you know, like Jesus died for you as the drums are going off in the background. I think it works. Yeah. I think it works, yeah. but you know, I, well, I know people have different thoughts throughout about Throughout that. Christian history, there absolutely has been a Christianization of pagan cultures like that as, mm. and in some ways it's produced some really awesome stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. Like subscribe, check out Lewis's new book. Lucas, do you want to briefly plug that in? Yeah, uh, Return of the Dragon, um, how the shocking way drugs and religion shape societies. Um, it's available for pre-sale. Um, check it out on uh, lewisungit.substack.com. I'll have a link to the Amazon page and everything. So yeah, check that out. It's a very interesting uh, book about uh, um, drugs and religion and what our reaction to that should be. Awesome. Thank you. All right, guys, like, subscribe, rate us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk to you next week.